have them do to you, and that's true, but it is that because it is first of all the person, Jesus. And uh, there's a sense in which Christianity has a cultural aspect. But Christianity isn't essentially culture. Christianity is first and foremost this man, this person, this figure, Jesus. And to be a little bit more theologically precise, the God who made the world says of each and every man and woman and boy and girl that the status and the meaning and the security of your life now this minute and hereafter forever and ever that that status and security is pinned exactly and precisely on your relationship to Jesus Christ. It's as important as that. Now, I'm going to try and persuade you of an answer to this question, who is Jesus? I'm not doing it impartially. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I've committed my life to Jesus Christ. I'm trusting him for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm trusting his promises for my security and my future. So I'm not being impartial. But I do want to be persuasive. I do want not just to tell you this is what I think. I want to give you reasons to come to your own conviction about who Jesus is. So that's what I want to try and do this morning. And I'm going to try and give you seven fairly brief answers to the question without going into any of them in huge detail. Number one, Jesus, the Jesus I'm referring to is Jesus of Nazareth, a real historical person. So I'm, I'm not talking about a make-believe person or a mythical person. I'm talking about somebody as real as you are, and in fact more real than you are. He's recorded in history. That's the way we know anything about the past, through records in history. And the records that we have, I know people dismiss the records in the Bible, but they do so out of ignorance, really. The, we have four accounts of the life of Jesus. They're usually referred to as four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of them in their own way leaves us in no doubt that the writer believed he was conveying truth, not fiction, and a a coherent, convinced, accurate truth. So the Gospel writer Luke, at the beginning of his Gospel, says, I've researched this accurately. Let me just see, because when I wrote that down, I didn't quote it in the version that we all have. Let me just see exactly what he does say. He says, at the beginning of his Gospel, myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Uh, He refers to eyewitnesses and he says, I write this so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So he's not making it up. He's not thinking this would be a great thought. He says, this is what I 
people have seen. I've got it first hand from these people. John, in one of his letters, speaks about his testimony to Jesus. He says it's the things that we have heard, the things we have seen with our eyes and touched with our hands. And he wants to leave us in no doubt he didn't make it up. It isn't a fable. It's sober, factual truth. And uh, the Apostle Paul, who didn't uh, see Jesus in his earthly ministry, but he uh, records that he knows people who saw Jesus, he knows people who saw the risen Jesus, and he knows that many of them are still alive. So Paul is saying, this is something I receive as factual, and I've checked it. It is checkable. And he goes on to say, if, if this actually isn't real and true, we are just complete idiots. He says, if it's not real and true, we are of all men most to be pitied. Jesus is a real historical person. There was an article in The Guardian on the 14th of April 2017 written by Dr. Simon Gathercole, which I invite you to look up if you just Google it, uh, Historical Jesus Guardian, you get it. Uh, And uh, towards the end of the article he says, these abundant historical references leave us with little reasonable doubt that Jesus lived and died. The more interesting question which goes beyond history and objective fact, he says, is whether Jesus died and lived. I'm not quite sure whether he's letting himself, letting himself down a little bit in that last bit, because this too is objective fact. But reading The Guardian, it's, it's there for what it's worth. Jesus has to be thought of as a real historical person. And C.S. Lewis, for what it's worth, says something, I couldn't find the exact uh, quote, um, professor of medieval Renaissance literature in Cambridge and uh, writer of many books. Somewhere, I couldn't find the exact reference, he says, when you read the stories of Jesus, when you read the gospel accounts, he is one of the very few people that comes across from the account as being a real three-dimensional living person. There there are other fictional. There are fictional people who have that uh, appearance. It's very difficult to make a fictional person seem like that. In one or two cases it succeeded. But the Jesus who we find in the Gospels is a real person. You find him saying things and you think, wow, nobody could have made that up. Only Jesus could have said that. Only he could say something like that with a straight face. Come to me, all you labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am humble in heart. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Who could say something like that apart from Jesus? Uh, And I think it's, I don't know whether it still says this about the Christianity Explored course, that as you read in Mark's Gospel, Jesus steps off the pages. You read it and you encounter, you come across, you meet a real person. And uh, the reality of the Jesus of the Bible is so much more than um, 
the two-dimensional characters like Thomas the Tank Engine. I've been watching quite a bit of Thomas the Tank Engine recently. I, I, I don't think he's a real historical character. He's just flat and two-dimensional and predictable. Jesus is very unlike that. And you could think of other characters like Aragorn, Son of Arathorn, or Iron Man, or Captain America. They are just flat, made-up people, but Jesus comes across as being totally real. And uh, if you're not convinced, I invite you to uh, sign up for the Christianity Explored course if you haven't already done so, or just read the Gospels, and perhaps with the prayer, Lord, show me yourself as I read. Okay, number one, Jesus. Who is Jesus? Answer, a real historical person. Number two, Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible is an obscure person. An obscure person. There is nothing showy or showy-offy about Jesus. I'm sort of inclined to make a contrast with Donald Trump, actually. But Jesus comes across as... Um, there's a, a, a huge sense of humility about him. So think, for example, of his origins. So his uh, family origin in a small place from a little-known family, uh, son of a carpenter, or perhaps he was a handyman, uh, uh, the local carpenter. His mother, uh, a country girl, not a princess, um, just a, 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 an ordinary country girl born in a, a, a stable actually a small stable I put the small in there located in a small town in a small country quite noticeable about Jesus isn't he not he didn't he, God didn't choose to send him to be born in Dubai in the, in the skyscrapers of Dubai or in the palaces of some great king, or in the heart of a modern city like New York. The, the Jesus of the Bible comes to an obscure place, for most of us a distant place, in a little-known family. The location of most of his ministry was in the north of his country, in the area of Galilee, and in English we would uh, think of the uh, decadent south which is where we're living now compared with up north and Jesus did his work up north and he had an accent or certainly Peter had an accent because when they came down south they could be told by their accent Jesus never got married never lived in a, lived in a palace never gained political power never headed up an army, never got on the news, never wrote a book. And his death was an ignominious death, meaning a shameful death, the sort of death that you would not, um, you would not think you would celebrate, it's the sort of thing you would be inclined to hush up. Crucifixion, that's how he was... That's how he died, by being nailed to a cross by Roman soldiers. 
that sort of death, I think if we were to compare it to something shameful now, it would be to be accused of being a, a paedophile or uh, somebody doing sexual harassment, you know, like Alex Salmond has been accused of just now. And you can tell the, 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 the sense of shame that he feels and is trying to uh, defend himself from. And that sense of shame would attach to the sort of death that Jesus died. That's how a disgusting criminal would die. His death was ignominious. And yet, and yet, he who has had or who has such a large devoted following as Jesus. You think of the thousands upon thousands and millions upon millions of people down through history and at this present time who say of this Jesus who was born in a small place, ministered in an obscure place, died a shameful death, the millions of people who say he is the greatest. And of course I should add that God himself from the account seems to have been absolutely determined to set the record straight on Jesus. He died condemned as a criminal and we're told that God reversed that verdict and raised him from the dead. Of all the people at Noah, that's a silly sentence. No one else, for no one else has God done this. For no one else has God said, you were condemned, you died, I raise you to, to life again. Uh, I raise you to a deathlessness and sinlessness. I vindicate you in glory. Only for Jesus has God done this. An obscure person, yet raised to the highest place there's something extraordinary just about that humility that Jesus shows Uh, and the Apostle Paul when he comments on it would say this is a God-like humility just stop and think about that a God-like humility all the people you and I have ever met who wanted to be like God in the in the normal sense of this world try and build themselves up I, I remember a, a rather awkward staff meeting at the school I used to teach at where uh, the head teacher inadvertently referred to the deputy head as behaving like a little tin god. I think um, he probably didn't mean to say that. But what he meant was that the chap was bossy and full of himself and uh, made up the rules as he went along. And he says, this is a little tin god. This is a, somebody making themselves out to be something. And Jesus is the exact opposite. His humility... And his selflessness 
is God-like. Being in very nature God did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a nobody, taking upon him the form of a servant. Number three, the Jesus of the Bible is a superb teacher. And if he was anything, he was a teacher. Crowds followed him. Crowds listened to him. You just have to read a few chapters of uh, the Gospels and you find crowds listening, um, listening to what he says, being, there being so much of a throng that they're pushing and shoving and Jesus has to get into a boat to distance himself from the crowds and then he teaches them. Uh, the incident of the he, he, healing, the feeding of the 5,000, They've been with Jesus a long time listening, so much so they haven't had anything to eat. That's some teaching, isn't it? That's some teaching that people just sit there for hours and hours and the whole day's gone. A superb teacher. He had a variety of teaching styles. Uh, He's well known for his parables. A sower went out to sow. The kingdom of heaven is like... um, is like... uh, um, making bread and putting yeast into bread. He, he taught with parables. He taught masses of people with parables, and they listened to him and hung on his every word. He must have been a superb speaker. He gave private interpretations to parables. He wasn't one of these speakers who's great on the platform, but is no good one-to-one. Uh, he he got on alongside his disciples and sometimes they're a bit afraid to ask him but he, he could get through to them and say, did, did you understand that? And they said, not really. And he said, Let me explain it to you. And he would explain things privately one to one. He gave what we would nowadays call a sermon. So we've got something called the Sermon on the Mount which we were looking at in church a little while ago. Um, that's quite a long, long sermon. People sat and listened to him. He had things that he would say that would sound completely ridiculous in the mouth of anybody else. There are a certain place where he says things like, I am. I am the bread of life. Come to me, you'll never go hungry. He says, I am the good shepherd. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You think of this humble person saying with a completely straight face, I am the way, the truth, the life. There is no other way to God except through me. That's the sort of thing he said. That's the sort of person he was. He also spoke in what you might call mysterious meditations. He says things like, No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What a thing to say. There is Almighty God, the Father, And Jesus says of himself, no one knows him except me. And the only reason anybody else ever gets to know him is I choose to reveal him.
And right at the beginning of the Gospels, we find him teaching. And Mark, uh, um, Ray read it to us from Mark. The people, when they heard him teach, in, in, in modern English, they'd say, wow. Such teaching and with authority. Not like the, the teachers they were used to, the Jewish scribes. Uh, the, 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 the Jesus of Mark's Gospel is constantly amazing people. There's a word, uh, a Greek word for it, which means to, to well, I think it, it means to, to go, wow! That's the Jesus, that's who Jesus is. Somebody that made people go, wow! And of him, the teacher, there is a, a place where God the Father speaks from heaven about him and says, This is my son. Listen to him. Advice for us. Crucial advice. Listen to him. Take his word at his word. Take his word as gospel. If he said something, think about it, retain it. Live by it. Stake your life on it. He was a superb teacher. Number four, he was a miracle worker. I'm sure Richard Dawkins doesn't agree with this, but Richard Dawkins is a very clever man, and there are some things that, some silly things that only clever people can bring themselves to believe. Richard Dawkins, if he doesn't believe Jesus is a miracle worker, he's silly. The, the Jesus of the Bible is a worker of miracles. His opponents did not deny this. Uh, they say things like this. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, many will believe in him. And that can't happen. That's what his opponents say. Um, he just did loads and loads of miracles. You think of the quantity of them in the little bit that Ray read to us. The whole town came round Jesus that, uh, that uh, Saturday evening. And he healed multitudes of people. So I remember one preacher saying the hospitals were emptied that weekend. There was nobody in A&E. There was nobody waiting for surgery. The, uh, the beds were all empty because Jesus was there. He just did multitudes of miracles. The whole town gathered at the door. Jesus healed many who had various diseases. Matthew chapter 4. All over Syria, all who were ill with various diseases came and he healed them. The quantity of miracles that Jesus did. The quality of, Jesus, of miracles that Jesus did. You know, what sort of things did he do? So did he make a 30-foot ice cream cone appear? And he could have done, couldn't he? Uh, did he... Oh, I don't know. Do you think, think of silly things that he could have done. What sort of things he did do? He healed people. He did exorcisms. He cast out demons 
And his exorcisms were not like exorcisms in a horror film where you have to take, you have to draw pentagrams and use holy water and blow smoke and go round seven times one way and seven times another way or whatever. Jesus just said, get out, and the devil got out. With a word, you see. He did some miracles in public. He did some miracles in private. Uh, he's very famous for doing this feeding miracle of healing. Oh dear, feeding the five thousand, which is a miracle with huge significance, which we won't go into just at the moment. He also fed four thousand. He did miracles with water. He never, as far as I know, he never produced water out of nothing. He did cross water. He walked on water and he turned water into wine. Very interesting to just ponder the type of things that he did do and the type of things he didn't do. But none of these miracles benefited himself. When he was tempted, when he was very hungry to turn stones into bread, he said, no, I'm not going to do that. He never took a pile of dust and turned it into a million dollars or diamonds, or anything like that, or gold. He never did miracles to do with money, apart from the one thing when there was a tax needed to be paid, and he said, go down and look in the mouth of a fish, and you can use that money in the mouth of the fish to pay the tax. But what he did supremely was to restore human life. When human life was battered and spoiled and diminished, He restored it. And when human life was under threat, he preserved it. And he took human beings and he made them a a bit more, or perhaps a lot more, what they were meant to be. It's interesting, isn't it? He restored people. You remember the demonized man who uh, was bound up with chains and he uh, self-harmed, and he cried out, and he was violent, and he lived not in a, um, a proper accommodation. He lived in the tombs where only dead things are. And that man, Jesus, restored so that at the end of it he was clothed in his right mind sitting at the feet of Jesus. That is a very typical, iconic sort of miracle that Jesus would do to restore human life and dignity. And you could even look at it and say, what he was doing in sort of in a miniature way was putting the clock back to what the world was in the Garden of Eden when everything was right between man and God between man and his environment, between human being and human being, when everything was what it ought to be. That in a little way, Jesus was here, 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 just bringing that, bringing glimpses of that as he restores human beings, bringing in a, a new world order, you might almost say. And some of his miracles are referred to as signs, and John's Gospel, that's the word that's used. And a sign, of course, is something that points to something. It says, look at this, 
This should tell you something about something else. Now, this sign says to Haywards Heath, and that's where you want to go, Haywards Heath, or whatever. And signs point beyond themselves. Jesus opened eyes. Does that point to something? That he is the person who can take blind, spiritually blind eyes and open them. And Jesus opened people's ears so that they could hear. Uh, and doesn't that point beyond itself to his ability to take our sort of stupidness that we can't hear God properly and to open our ears so that we can hear him? And uh, he, people who are paralysed, he put them back on their feet again. He gave them strong legs, as it were, so that they could uh, function and move. And does that point towards something that he puts us back on our feet to serve him so that we can go and come in his service? I think that's what science is getting at. And uh, all these miracles show us the authority of Jesus and they also show us the helplessness of human need eyes that cannot see ears that cannot hear bodies that will not operate as God wants it's all bound up with what the Bible calls sin and it tells us that, or puts to us, that the condition that we are in without Jesus Christ, without God, is of being blind and deaf and unresponsive and spiritually ill, paralyzed, dead. I think we are pointed in that direction and perhaps you this morning can identify with that because we sang a song, didn't we? Once I was blind, believed I saw everything, but actually I was foolish. And Jesus opened my eyes. And perhaps you can say something like that this morning. I was dead, Jesus raised me. I was lost, Jesus found me. I was paralyzed, Jesus gave me life. Number five. <coughs> Who is Jesus? He is a radical interpreter of Judaism. And I say Judaism, um, I put it in inverted commas because I think technically Judaism is something that developed after the time of Jesus. But let's say the, the Jewish religion uh, that was around at the time of Jesus. Because Jesus didn't, you, you, you know this, he didn't operate in a religious and spiritual vacuum. We're not to imagine that Jesus lived you know, in Patcham, or uh, that uh, Jesus lived in uh, um, Renaissance, or that Jesus lived in Geneva, or um, modern Europe. He lived in Israel. He lived in that country, in that culture, with that history. That's where he was. And just without trying to put it into a huge amount of detail, if you think of Israel as God's Petri dish, a Petri dish is a, a, a little dish with some 
gel on it and you put things on there to see whether they will grow or not. And typically you can work out whether there are infections and germs because you put them on there and see what grows and what kills what and, and so on. And you can put it under a microscope and you can see there really what's happening in the whole world but you can see it on the Petri dish as a clear example. And Israel was, if you like, God's Petri dish. A specific instance of the human condition and to these people over the course of centuries God the creator showed his character what sort of God he was they uh, as a nation experienced the power of the Lord the creator God they were commanded with the ethical norms of the Lord the things that he valued the things that he himself exemplified uh, in Hebrew sedek meaning righteousness, mishpat meaning justice, hesed meaning steadfast love and the God who formed Israel said these are the things that I love and if you want to say the things that characterize me it's this sort of thing and I want them to characterize you as well as my people and and Israel was also brought in on the future plans and promises of the Lord actually promises that went beyond Israel to the whole world but anyway there's Jesus who comes to this nation at that point and radically interprets all of this in other words he says you have your scriptures you have your history let me tell you what this really means if you read the Gospels, you find him doing this. And the really, really surprising thing, uh, in all the way Jesus reinterprets it and tells, it what, tells them what it really means, is he puts himself at the center of it. He says, your history is actually all to do with me. And all that you've been expecting is all to do with me. And all that you see you ought to be is modelled in me the law was given through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ I am this now in front of you embodied as it were and of course Jesus was scathing in his criticism of of what the Jewish establishment had done with that promises, that ethics, uh, that uh, understanding of God. And the Jesus of the Bible, you'll understand this, is not only a Jesus who's compassionate, but a Jesus who could go into the synagogue and he could look round, eyeballing the people, angry, at their hardness of heart. Just imagine that. Perhaps in a room like this, Jesus looking round, angry at their hardness of heart. There's a um, Christmas carol which says about the birth of Jesus and the town in which he was born, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And that's true of Jesus. That's who he is. He is the embodiment of the hopes and fears, the promises 
the power, the grace that God has put into this created world for everybody. Not just for Jews, but for Swiss and Germans and Koreans and Japanese and everybody. That's how important Jesus is. That was number five. He's a radical interpreter of Judaism. Number six, he's a man of colossal personal authority. It would be hard to imagine anyone making up the things that only Jesus could say. I'm particularly thinking about his authority. Um, There's an, an example early on in Luke's Gospel where he infuriates a crowd. Uh, in the, actually, I think it's in the synagogue. They're so infuriated by Jesus that they want to take him to the local um, cliff, the edge of the local cliff, and chuck him over. And they get out there, and it says in Luke 4.30, he walked right through the crowd and went his way. Now, I, I, I could be wrong, but as I imagine that, I imagine a load of people pushing and shoving and shouting and threatening and showing their fists, and Jesus just calmly saying, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, or something like that, or no, I'm going that way. And by, I think, what must have been his, his sheer personal authority not being thrown over a cliff. Can you imagine doing that? There was something special about Jesus. As Ray read to us, he went into the synagogue early on in his ministry and people said, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He says to the demon, be quiet, get out. His authority uh, at a later point, Jesus is in a boat and it's a storm and the storm is uh, intimidating, frightening the, the sailors who are in the, in the, the fishermen who are in the boat. And Jesus says to the storm, shh, be quiet, be still. And immediately the storm stops. And the fishermen in the boat are absolutely gobsmacked and say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. A man of colossal personal authority. There's a very comical incident in one of the Adrian Plass books. Um, Adrian Plass is a Christian writer, and he writes funny things. Uh, the earlier ones are funnier than the new ones, I think. Uh, and he, he's saying, oh, I, he has a paper clip on his table and he tries by, uh, to, by the force of his word and by prayer to move the paper clip across the table and it doesn't work uh, and it doesn't does it we don't have the authority to do that there's something very different very different about a man who can say to a storm be quiet and it's quiet to a, a dead girl he says, little girl, I say to you, get up. To Lazarus, who is dead, he says, Lazarus, come out. Now, isn't there something there? 
which I've put a man of colossal personal authority, but I think if you ponder that, it goes well beyond that. It goes beyond that into another realm of divinity. Who is Jesus? Did I say I was going to do seven? Looks as though I did six. Right, here we go. Uh, What do we look at? Jesus is a real historical person. Inescapably real. An obscure person. But his humility shouldn't blind us to his grandeur. A super teacher. And if you're not sure about Jesus, why not start there with the words that the Father speaks about him? Listen to him. Why not start listening to him? A miracle worker. Doing things that are signs to something way beyond just producing bread or producing wine. A radical interpreter of Judaism. We, we mustn't forget this. He, he's in a religious context and he does something with that and speaks about it and interprets it in a most remarkable way. In particular, saying that he is the focus of all that. A man of colossal personal authority. He's these things. He's not less than these things, but he is these things at least and more. And I haven't touched this morning upon his death. But that ignominious, wretched, shameful death is surprisingly, and if you come to Christianity new, you ought to be surprised by this, that people say that's the in some ways the focus of the best thing about him when we uh, we joined earlier this morning uh, uh, in communion Christian people joined together we're told to join together to remember Jesus by drinking wine and eating bread and particularly Jesus is saying remember remember me remember my death and I haven't stopped to uh, enlarge upon that this morning but uh, we will certainly do so but let's just say that as I said with the children there is something totally remarkable about his death death comes to sinners the wages of sin is death so why did Jesus die and the short and the profound answer is by his death we are forgiven by his wounds we are healed the punishment that gave us peace was upon him a profound and enormous substitution exchange, replacement something like that has taken place that he suffered what we deserved so that we could go free who is Jesus? The person in the Bible who gives us uh, or exemplifies for us the full answer is uh, Thomas in the Gospel of John. Uh, He goes down as being called Doubting Thomas, a little bit unfair on him, but 
Jesus, uh, he, he saw Jesus, and at the end, uh, no, having seen the risen Jesus Christ, what he says is, in answer to this question, who is Jesus, he says, my Lord and my God. And would that we all could answer that question that way. To really see who he really is. And let me close with a promise. Uh, this is a promise that's sort of synthesized from the, the various promises in the Bible. Here is a promise from God. You yourself can know Jesus Christ as a living person today. That's a promise from God. You can have that certainty, that relationship. You can have that yourself today. Talk to God about it. Listen to Jesus about it. Don't be satisfied until you've wrestled your way with God through to us a clear answer. Please don't go away thinking, oh, I could never manage that. It's far too difficult. Please don't think that. It is just a breath away from you. We're going to close by singing. And what are we going to sing? Can you tell us what we're going to sing?